You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We begin with that very public fatal shooting this morning at University Golf Club at UBC. A man gunned down in the parking lot with dozens of golfers nearby. Grace Key is live with more on what happened. And Grace, once again, a car was dumped and burned nearby. Yeah, and police are investigating that, but at this hour here at the golf course, now about an hour ago, the coroners did remove the body. You can see behind me here the blue tent and that white Porsche with that trunk open. That's near where the body was located. At this time, police not releasing a lot of information, but they do believe this was a targeted hit. As golfers were in the middle of their game, a man was shot and killed at the parking lot of the University Golf Club by UBC. The victim's body was next to a white Porsche with its trunk open. On the ground, a baseball hat, cell phone and shell casings littering the ground. At about 9.45, uh, our group was on the fifth tee box, which is about a block away from uh, where the uh, gunshot gunshots took place. And uh, we were about to tee off and heard about 10 what we thought were firecrackers to begin with. A short time later, less than three kilometers away, a light-colored Audi was set on fire in an alley near West 21st and Crown Street. Dash cam video of a car leaving the golf course matches the description of the burning vehicle. Police have taken the video as evidence. One neighbor saw people running out of the car before it caught on fire. Another describes the blaze. And I saw a massive bill of smoke, very dark, so I came running outside, assuming a house or a garage was on fire, and, and saw the Audi burning itself to shreds and ran and knocked on some neighbors' doors and called 911. Then at about 10.45 a.m., there was a three-car collision on Highway 91 and Westminster Highway in Richmond. That involved a B.C. Highway Patrol vehicle, a commercial vehicle, and a car believed to have been associated to the suspicious car fire in Vancouver. The driver in the commercial vehicle was taken to hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Three people were arrested and taken into custody from the third vehicle. Well, what I can say is anytime there's a vehicle fire that's within close proximity to a homicide, a hit's going to be looking into it to see if it is linked. Um, we're going to work with Vancouver Police and their forensic unit to determine any kind of link to our investigation and we'll pursue it. All right, Grace, I watched that IHIT press conference earlier. They didn't say much about the victim. Have we learned any more since then? Yeah, they basically said that the victim was a 38-year-old man and they are not releasing his name at the moment as they try and work on continuing notifying next to kin. Chris? All right, more details still to come, I'm sure. Thanks very much. That's Grace Key reporting at the University Golf Course. Now, we have some breaking news in Burnaby right now, too, where police, yellow police tape is up and IHIT has been called to another scene. Kamal Kuramali is live with the details. And Kamal, what have you learned there? Chris, we know that two people have been found dead inside a vehicle outside of a Burnaby Secondary School. I want to show you the scene at this very second. So investigators focusing on this gray Jeep behind me here, a tarp covering it from view for uh, many people so they can't see inside the tinted vehicle. You can see the forensics team walking up to it right now. So quite a bit of activity happening. But Burnaby RCMP say a man and a woman were found 
found dead inside the vehicle. The call to police coming in around 1:45 this afternoon. This is uh, near Parker Street and uh, just south of Hastings, uh, right outside Alpha Secondary School. Now, no confirmation yet on who they were, their relationship, or how they died. But from our point of view, we can't see any bullet holes or any other kind of damage done to the SUV. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team is also here. And obviously, even more terrifying, an incident taking place right outside of Alpha Secondary School on a school day. So you can imagine there were students and young uh, teenagers inside the school. Once again, this incident happening near Alpha Avenue and Parker Street. That's just south of Hastings. And police are asking for anyone who was driving through this area today who may have dash cam footage to come forward. Chris, back over to you. Troubling for those kids at that school for sure. Kamal, thanks very much. That's Kamal Kuramali reporting from Burnaby. Vancouver's new mayor says restoring public safety will be his top priority. Ken Sim held his first news conference since the vote today, outlining his priorities after winning a strong majority on council. Amaragahi explains what Vancouver's first mayor of Chinese descent has planned. Vancouver's new mayor is keen to keep his election night momentum going. Literally 12 uh, hours after the, the victory uh, celebration, um, we uh, put a transition team together and we had our first meeting on Sunday afternoon. It was a sweep for Ken Sim and his ABC party, holding eight of 11 seats now on council. Everybody's stuck together consistently. There was a, a, a coherence of the message. The council over the last four years was, you know, a multi-party adventure uh, that was that had, you know, epic meetings and hearings and, and the rest. And so I think voters are probably fed up with, with some of that. Sim vows to fulfill the promise many believe won him the election. Public safety is a big priority, so... Um, we, we want to get moving quickly on the 100 new police officers and 100 mental health nurses. We will be focused on that um, almost immediately. Random assaults, street disorder, and incidents tied to mental health in the city. Vancouverites want to see uh, movement on it, and so that's what we're going to do. Sim, a chartered accountant, feels he can go through the operating budget line by line to find the $20 million the city needs to pay for the officers and nurses. We're going to maintain all the current service levels. We're just going to look for those things that are discretionary. I know this is an old example, but we made a choice spending $306,000 on chairs during a pandemic. Maybe we could have used those resources to invest in three mental health nurses. Adding the VPD has told him recruitment won't be an issue. For the first time in a while, uh, the VPD feels very supported and the Vancouver Police Department is a destination police force. And uh, the VPD feel very confident that they can hire those 100 additional officers. A question Sim is not ready to answer yet is where exactly the new officers will be deployed, especially in neighbourhoods in the city where policing has previously been difficult. Imadagahi, Global News. And as Ken Sim assumes power at City Hall, he'll have to get used to working with a provincial government that might not see him as the solution to some of Vancouver's biggest problems. A number of B.C. cabinet ministers endorsed Sim's opponent, Kennedy Stewart. Richard Zussman has more on how this relationship might evolve. The orange crush of two years ago has been replaced by a sea of change. There was a very strong message of change. Anything you would have done differently 
over the last four years. Dozens of incumbents defeated, including Kennedy Stewart, who is endorsed by BC NDP heavyweights David Eby, Adrian Dix, George Heyman. Now that same provincial government needs to work with Ken Sim. I can't judge uh, what Ken Sim will be like to work with. I, I know that uh, in listening to him, he's expressed uh, a lot of sincerity, wanting to get uh, down to work. Ken Sim will eventually come here to Victoria to the Premier's office to meet around securing funding for his big promises. If David Eby is in the office, it will set up a unique situation. He's my MLA and I'm his mayor and so I, I'm looking forward to the conversations where I say, well, you know, if you want my vote, I'd like to see this. And he'll put on his hat and say, well, if you want my vote, I'd like to see that. And the want list could be long in both Vancouver and across B.C. This includes building and staffing mental health treatment facilities, constructing tens of thousands of housing units, and expanding SkyTrain networks, including eventually running the line from Vancouver to the North Shore. Part of a growing trend of city mayors promising things the province is ultimately responsible for. We are seeing a blurring of jurisdictional boundaries and responsibilities um, and that's in part because some of the issues that we are dealing with don't respect jurisdictional boundaries. The BC NDP will have pressure to support these newly elected mayors and the voters who elected them. I was flabbergasted, frankly, to see uh, people like Adrian Dix and George Heyman and David Eby, especially the next premier of this province, campaigning for Kennedy Stewart in Vancouver, knocking on doors to try and maintain the status quo. I'm not worried about translating uh, what happened on a municipal level to a provincial level. The issues are different, the people are different. But the voters, they are the same. And with 37 incumbents across BC now out of the job, there's clearly a mood for change. Richard Sussman, Global News, Victoria. Another surprise from Doug McCallum. He is considering asking for a recount of Surrey's election results. McCallum lost by nearly 1,000 votes, 973 Saturday to Brenda Locke, a significant margin but still a small fraction of all the votes cast. After an initial concession speech, McCallum says he is not conceding at this point in time. Provincial law allows candidates to ask for a judicial recount if they believe ballots were rejected improperly or if they think the count is wrong. McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition says lawyers are reviewing the party's options. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with a closer look at voter turnout in this municipal election. Keith, before we get to that, I have to ask you, what about this latest move from McCallum? Yeah, it's based on a clause in the Local Elections Act that it does allow him to seek a B.C. Supreme Court judge. But the gap there is almost 1,000 votes. Never seen a recount based on that. So, again, I'd be skeptical if that's going to proceed. But he has the right to do that within nine days of the, uh, the final vote. So we'll see what happens there. Okay, let's talk about turnout. Pathetic, as I've described it on Twitter. Yeah. But, yeah, what do we know about it? Pathetic's a good word for it, Chris. So even though I think there was a significantly more amount of news coverage, particularly in the Vancouver race, it didn't translate to people going out to the polls. So the turnout abysmally low, 37% over BC. That's down five points from 2018. Vancouver just nudging north of 36%, down 3.4 points. Surrey uh, up a little bit. That seems to uh, be the exception, not the norm. Burnaby down a whopping 13 points. It is 29%. Maple Ridge down 12 points to 22%. A fifth of the electorate 
electorate only voted there. Th uh, Victoria down eight points at 37 percent. Uh, political science, uh, scientist Hamish Telford points out, though, that people who were motivated for change rather than status quo appeared to have come out, and that's resulted in a lot of change out there. Quite clearly, uh, the people who were frustrated with government in British Columbia were more motivated to vote on Saturday than people were who were sort of satisfied with the status quo. And they came out in droves and they turned out lots of sitting mayors. So on the other hand, I was able to talk to 70 grade 5 and grade 4 students in Ocean Cliff Elementary today over here, Chris, and they tell me all their parents voted in Surrey. And that may be a factor when it comes to Doug McCallum seeking that recount. All right, thanks very much. Good to know the, uh, the parents of the kids are engaged. All right, Vancouver police could be deployed with body cams within three years. Ken Sims, ABC Vancouver Party, promised to make use of the technology despite the privacy concerns and the hefty price tag. And Romina Dea has that story. Vancouver police testified they were defending themselves. He's not, he's not fighting, he's not fighting. But this cell phone video reveals a different truth. Judge Harris ruling the police initiated the fight. Would officer body cameras made a difference? Vancouver's new mayor promising them for all police officers 24-7 by summer 2025. It actually improves accountability, um, not only for the police officers, but also for uh, the public at large. Vancouver police say they're open to discussion, but there are privacy concerns for police and the public. The greatest hurdle, extraordinary costs, millions yearly for things like equipment, maintenance, data storage and personnel. The union says oversight is good, but who's going to pay? They were looking at uh, potentially needing anywhere between 23 and 25 uh, digital forensic uh, video experts uh, that would need to be hired. Decisions about police use of intrusive surveillance technology shouldn't be talking points in a political campaign. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association critical of Mayor Sim's plan. Drop the gun! Drop the gun! The organization says we're not the U.S. There's no solid evidence in Canada that police body cams trigger good behavior by police or the public. I mean, these tools are not magic. They are not merely by strapping them onto an officer going to serve the goal of enhanced police accountability. BC's police watchdog says cameras are already out there. Cell phones, dash cam. Video doesn't tell the whole story, but it works. And it's extremely useful. So I don't need a study to tell me how useful body cam evidence uh, would be. Delta police already armed with more than 15 body cams. Cameras also part of the uniform for officers in Calgary and Toronto. The RCMP expecting to roll out up to 15,000 cameras next year. The technology, a growing trend as the debate over police transparency and accountability continues. Romina Dea, Global News. In Surrey, stopping the transition to a municipal police force was a cornerstone of Mayor-elect Brenda Locke's campaign. She says the Surrey Police Service would come at a cost too high for taxpayers to bear. But the police service says abandoning the transition is also going to be costly. Catherine Urquhart shows us the millions of dollars at stake. For the past four years, the city of Surrey has been transitioning from the RCMP to having its own force, the Surrey Police Service. 
but Mayor-elect Brenda Locke remains adamant about stopping the transition. The RCMP or the police of jurisdiction today in Surrey, they will be moving forward. The future of SPS is now even more in question following comments from BC's public safety minister. Mayor-elect Locke has uh, indicated that she wants to uh, undo the transition and Surrey has the ability to, uh, to make that choice. SPS maintains the process is just too far along. What uh, Mayor-elect Locke is suggesting is that she's going to fire a bunch of people and uh, the taxpayers of Surrey are going to be on the hook. What might it cost to stop the transition? SPS says $94.4 million has already been spent. 93.6 million of that non-recoverable. Severance for officers owed 18-month buyouts is estimated at 66.1 million. Total cost to end the transition, 159.7 million, according to SPS. Locke claims severance wouldn't necessarily be paid out. It will be a workout clause, so they will be able to work out for the next 18 months or go to a different agency. SPS says Locke is misrepresenting the numbers and severance would have to be paid. As for the newly hired SPS officers returning to their old jobs, as Locke suggests, other police departments say Locke is oversimplifying and returning to their old jobs is not a certainty. Some who joined SPS were promoted. Others retired from their original agencies before joining SPS. The critical part of all this will be for Surrey to put together a transition plan that deals with all the components of untransitioning. Future policing in Surrey now unclear, as is the cost to Surrey taxpayers. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. All right, now something that'll make you feel good. Today is day one of Variety Week here on Global, where we introduce you to children whose lives have been chain changed for the better by grants from Variety. And that money, of course, comes from you. So by calling 310 Kids right now and making a donation, your name will be added to the list that you can see at the bottom of our screen. And when you call during the news hour tonight, your donation will be matched by an anonymous donor up to $50,000, so call 310KIDS right now, and we thank you for doing so. Extended drought gets serious in Sechelt. With its supply drying up, the Sunshine Coast community declares a water emergency. The drastic impact it's going to have on residents and businesses there next on the NewsHour. Taking those I do's to the next level, the unexpected wedding crashers that made this ceremony even more memorable coming up later. But right now, B.C. has its first water emergency and it's on the Sunshine Coast thanks to ongoing severe drought conditions there. A state of local emergency has been declared in Sechelt. That's where Aaron MacArthur is tonight. And Aaron, this has major implications for residents. For residential users, Chris, it's status quo. Just conserve as much water as possible. But for commercial users, it's a whole different ballgame. Starting Wednesday, the district is turning off the taps. Water has been in short supply on the Sunshine Coast for months. Since the end of August, the main water source in the regional district has been drawn down to critical levels. Siphons installed as a backup have run dry, forcing the regional district to install new pumps in a secondary water source, a temporary fix that was in a best-case scenario only enough water to last until early November. Even with rain in the forecast, the district has taken the additional step 
of declaring a local state of emergency. The rain we are expecting for late last week won't be enough by any means to do anything in terms of lake levels. The regional district, along with Seashelp and the Seashell First Nation, have all signed on to the state of emergency. Starting Tuesday at 11.59, all non-essential commercial and industrial users of drinking water will be restricted. Swimming pools, breweries and distilleries are all named, as are cannabis producers and the concrete industry. Businesses will be compelled to stop using public water until the order is lifted. The intent is really to focus on make sure that we have enough water for residents, for the hospital, for firefighting. At the same time as we are still working on all kind of means to expand our water supply. A typical summer in Seashell would see 200 millimeters of rain. Since July 10th, just nine millimeters has fallen. Persephone Brewing has about three weeks of product on hand and are strategizing on how best to navigate this water crisis. But the business understands how critical this issue is for the whole Sunshine Coast. It's not just about our bottom lines, it's about trying to keep our people employed and trying to, you know, contribute to our economy on the coast. Without significant rainfall, the regional district is facing the prospect of imposing more restrictions as the water source slowly disappears. The regional district is required to keep a certain amount of water in Chapman Creek for fish stocks. They have gone to the provincial government to ask for that amount to be reduced to stretch out the water supply as long as possible. The province has yet to get back. Chris? Desperate times for sure. Thanks, Aaron. Still ahead, TELUS takes the lead with a move that won't make some customers happy. Why the telecommunications giant is adding a service fee to your bill if you pay with a credit card. And Variety Week begins with the story of a young girl who had to learn to speak all over again and how we're hoping you can help other children just like her. Double trouble eastbound at the Portman Bridge. There's a crash before the bridge deck in the left lane and then a collision at mid-span in the right through lane. Crews are on scene to both and traffic is absolutely gridlocked out of Coquitlam as a result. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Auto Glass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Well, if you'd like to rack up points on your credit card to counter the crushing impacts of inflation, a recent move by TELUS isn't going to go over too well. It's going to start charging customers a processing fee. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew is here to show us why more companies might follow Sudan. That's right, Chris. TELUS customers who make one-time or pre-authorized credit card bill payments are now subject to a 1.5% credit card processing fee plus tax. The telecom giant says merchants had been unable to pass those costs on through transaction fees until a recent class action settlement over credit card processing fees removed the surcharge restrictions imposed by Visa and MasterCard. Now, TELUS filed a tariff notice with the CRTC in August seeking approval to introduce a 1.5% credit card processing fee, which is effective October 17th. The telecom stating each time a merchant like TELUS processes a credit card payment, it must pay a fee to the credit card companies. The fee is a percentage of the payment being made. It is natural and fair for these costs to be passed on to the customers who incur them rather than across all customers, including those who do not pay with credit card. Now, as mentioned, TELUS is now free to add the surcharge following that class 
class action settlement with Visa and MasterCard that gave merchants the power to pass credit card fees onto customers as of October 6. The Retail Council of Canada says TELUS is just the first off the mark with this fee and it expects many other businesses to follow suit. But some consumers say the move is bad timing given the current inflationary environment. This is kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I completely object to that. I, I cannot believe that TELUS has not already factored in their merchant services fees to their customers' billing. So to me, this feels like a money grab. I feel it's completely unjust. And so what effectively TELUS is trying to do is lower the cost of the interchange fees that they are paying. You know, retailers are highly sympathetic to that. These interchange fees are the bane of most retailers' existence. Um, and we honestly and very strongly feel that the federal government should have capped these fees decades ago. The Retail Council also says Canadians pay some of the highest credit card processing fees in the world, between 1.4 to 3%. The European Union has capped interchange fees at 0.3% of a credit card transaction, but to date, Canada has not set a cap on the fees. Meantime, Rogers and Freedom Mobile say they do not charge customers credit card processing fees, and Rogers says it has no plans to move ahead with a similar fee. Bell did not respond to our inquiry. Now, TELUS has told customers the credit card processing fee will be entirely avoidable for all customers who can choose another payment method, including through their bank or via a debit transaction. But TELUS did not respond to any of our inquiries when Consumer Matters reached out for more answers. Still, the CRTC says the TELUS application is before the commission and it has not yet made a determination. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, Ann, thanks very much. A Victoria man faces eight charges after police swooped in on a suspected rental scam over the weekend. Police issued a warning about the suspect last month, saying a man had been bilking would-be renters, showing them the apartment and charging them a damage deposit. But when the renters got there, the keys didn't work. Police say a man was arrested Saturday in the 600 block of Toronto Street after he refused to pay rent after moving in. Police say the landlord recognized the man from police warnings about the rental scam and then alerted officers. Just ahead, new park board, new priorities. How ABC domination will lead to big changes in Stanley Park with the controversial separated bike lanes riding off into the sunset. Good evening. A crash investigation continues in Richmond, and the Westminster Highway overpass remains completely shut down above Highway 91. Traffic is still pretty busy in the area, and the detour is number 6 road instead of Westminster Highway. When renewing your ICBC Auto Plan insurance online, select your nearest Sussex Insurance when prompted. For all online broker benefits, peace of mind, and best rates, select Sussex Insurance today. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. The civic election brought sweeping change to the Vancouver Park Board. Six of seven seats are now held by ABC Vancouver. At one time, the party vowed to abolish the Park Board, but backtracked on that promise in the summer. Krista Dow looks at ABC's park priorities, starting with a polarizing issue in Vancouver's Crown Jewel. 
Love it or hate it, it has been a fixture in Stanley Park since the start of the pandemic. But now after three years, the separated bike lane will be coming down. We're going to remove the temporary bike lane and restore full car access to the park. It's one of the top priorities for the newly elected Vancouver Park Board. We've fallen behind on maintenance. Commissioner-elect Laura Christensen says while the board will be restoring full vehicle traffic, in the interim, they hope to come up with a permanent bike solution for everyone. We see less cyclists through the winter. We've had a lot of complaints from, from small business owners in the park, um, as well as people with mobility challenges having trouble accessing the park. Maybe that might be a separated bike lane in some areas or um, you know, just a shared, shared space in other areas. Jerry O'Neill knows all too well about sharing spaces. Hi, you guys, you little guys. He says he's hopeful for a better working relationship this time around. There was one thing to be challenged, but there was one thing to have uh, no relation whatsoever with your landlord. They've always been a crisis management. They never really look ahead. So we're hoping with a new board, it's going to have a fresh eye on this. Other priorities include a complete full audit of the board's facilities, making drinking in parks permanent, plus fixing fields and buildings like the aquatic center, which had to close in March due to a partial collapse. Yeah, so we're going to work with our ABC majority on council to get an emergency restoration fund. And that emergency restoration fund is going to be used to catch up on the maintenance and renewals that we've fallen behind on. ABC had actually campaigned on abolishing Canada's only elected park board, but later backtracked on that decision. Six ABC commissioners and one Green will be officially sworn in next month. Krista Dow, Global News. Well, as we want launch Variety Week, the compelling story tonight of a young girl who had a birth defect that went undiscovered until she was old enough for elementary school. Cleft palate affects as many as 500 babies each year in Canada. 11-year-old Caitlin had the surgery to correct it, and that led to a whole new challenge for her. But Variety was there to help her through. She may be easy to understand now, but that wasn't the case when Caitlin started speech therapy four years ago. When we started, she was doing everything like that down in her throat for consonant sounds. So like Pinkie Pie would be ing I. Caitlin was born with a cleft palate, but doctors didn't discover it until she was almost six years old. I was in the back of the throat where she had a little opening. You know, for us, like we, I'm sure with all different sounds, where we have to inhale the air, she would, ex she had the opposite, she'd expel it. It was the opposite for her, so that's why she had problems talking. Caitlin underwent two surgeries to repair her cleft palate, but that left her having to learn a whole new way to speak. So even though the surgery made the structure correct, she still needed to learn how to make those sounds in her mouth because she's been doing them that way for nine years. Check. Check. Private speech sessions are expensive, and while the government provides funding for some of the cost, they don't cover all of it leaving families having to pay out of pocket. Caitlin has some government funding from the called at home program, but they only cover $80 an hour. So generally the private speech therapy rate is 150 an hour. So that leaves Bev and her family having to cover $60 an hour, which, you know, one week, whatever. But over a year, if you think 40 sessions in a year, that's $2,400 they have to cover somehow. 
Thankfully, Variety, the children's charity, has been providing Caitlin's family with a grant to cover the extra portion of her therapy. But Caitlin is still working on perfecting her speech and will need to continue seeing Gina to build on the progress that she's already made. I think I can play the hot one, like can play them now. Without Variety, I would not have been seeing Caitlin, and she would not have made the progress she's made. Gina and Variety have been a blessing in disguise. I don't, I don't know what I'd do without them. I'm so thankful for them both. Oh, Kaylin, we're so proud of you. Great work. And for those of you watching at home, you can make a difference in a child's life just like Caitlin's when you donate to Variety. Just call 310-KIDS or go online to variety.bc.ca. And don't forget, tonight your donation is doubled up to $50,000 thanks to one very generous anonymous donor. So give during the news hour if you can, and your money will go a lot further. All right, coming up, more temperature records obliterated. This is what we see in August. The unusual impact of our historic October dry spell. Also coming up, wedding splashers. A newlywed couple get some uninvited guests, but they really don't mind. BC's summer-like fall continues to smash temperature records generate air quality advisories and extend the level five drought in many regions. But as Kylie Stanton reports, there might finally be some change on the way. This is what we see in August. Even September would be pushing it, but midway through October, and these conditions are simply unprecedented. Essentially, we haven't had any rain on the south coast or Vancouver Island for over three months now. That's left grass bone dry, trees stressed, and some rivers hitting all-time lows. Not just for the, the date, but all-time lowest ever. At the same time, temperatures are hitting all-time highs. This past weekend, records were shattered right across the province. Hope, Pemberton, Smithers and Terrace all surpassed daily highs that were set decades ago. Pitt Meadows, Powell River, Trail and Metro Vancouver broke the 1929 records, while Creston surpassed the one it set back in 1924. Then there's Port Alberni, a notorious hotspot that toppled a high set just seven years after the turn of the century. So many records, not just broken by, you know, half a degree, but by multiple degrees. With the summer-like weather holding strong, so too is the wildfire season. According to the BC Wildfire Service, there are 200 fires burning in the province, with several others still active in Washington state. That's resulting in smoky skies through most of the south coast, into the interior, and even in Fort St. John. And so this morning we have air quality advisories out for um, all of Vancouver Island, as well as most of the lower mainland, with lots of wildfire smoke impacting the region. The one thing that could turn things around is the rain. And for the first time since early July, storms are finally in the forecast. It does look like the first one is arriving around the Friday time period for the island and the south coast, and there is potential for some more early next week. Too little, the drought continues, and too much presents a whole new host of problems to deal with. But the good news is Mother Nature is expected to strike the right balance this time around, moving us into fall once and for all. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Well, it's going to come in fast if that's what happens. I guess Christy's here with a look at the forecast. And I think most people are looking forward to a refreshing rainfall, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, I mean, the vegetation certainly needs it, Chris. And in terms of the smoke, that would help clear things out. I thought I would just give you an idea of how smoky it was. Look at this satellite view from the NASA uh, um, World Satellite View, and you can see how widespread that smoke is. A lot of our smoke, by the way, is coming from those fires sort of just south of the border, south of the Chilliwack area. But it is certainly from a number of fires in through the province as well. Um, but because of the smoke being so widespread, yesterday we broke 24 records across the province. Today we didn't warm up because of it. Air quality health risk is highest in through the Fraser Valley, moderate to high there where it's not too bad in Metro Vancouver. Just FYI, although it is very smoky and these were our highs for today, as I said, we did not warm up much at all. Now we are expecting rain across the North Coast region, but the rest of the province is pretty much like we saw today where we should be enjoying sunshine, but we'll likely see very smoky conditions. In fact, I put an all cloud icon into, into Merritt, Chile, and hope because it will seem cloudy there because the smoke is so thick. Now it should be bright ish in our area, although we are going to see that widespread smoke and no longer are we putting that range in temperature where areas away from the water will warm up. We're not expecting that because of the smoke over the next couple of days. But yes, officially fall will arrive on Friday and then it opens the floodgates. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from Campbell Lake, which is uh, near or southeast of uh, Kamloops. So thank Thank you to Bosco for that one. Great shot with the smoke, as you can see there. It can be beautiful, no doubt about it. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Now, newlyweds off the coast of Vancouver Island had some unexpected wedding crashers. Take a look. A pod of killer whales showed up. It happened this weekend. The orcas cruised by at sunset right after the couple said their vows on a beach on Quadra Island looking toward Campbell River. How romantic. Their wedding videographer captured the magical moment and called it a clear sign of good luck for the newlyweds. Good luck to them from everybody here as well. Okay, Squire's got uh, a look ahead to sports. Squire. If those whales go to the reception, that's it for the buffet. <laughs> it's all over. No one's going to eat but them. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll show you what happened with the Canucks and the Capitals. Vancouver has a phobia when it comes to holding leads. It happened again tonight. Oh, they blew all, it. Also coming up. Thanks, Squire. There are people who used to be able to make ends meet, just barely, but now that's not the case. And as inflation sends grocery bills soaring, a move by Canada's biggest grocer that might pay off for everyone. All right, Squires back with sports. Early leads are supposed to help in sports. Well, so are leads after two periods. Yeah. Usually if you're leading Late after two periods, you should win, especially if you're leading by two. As we said, the Canucks and leads. The Canucks should take a lead two seconds before the end of the game. Then they'll be able to hold it. The uh, Vancouver Canucks have not gotten off to a great start this year. And tonight they had to deal with the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, who hadn't scored in his first three games this season, which is something that only happened one other time in his career. So you knew that sooner or later, and tonight was sooner, the third highest goal scorer of all time was going to break out. And he was going to do it on the Canucks. All right. And he did. On a power play. The uh, Caps were two for three on the power play tonight. The Canucks penalty killing looking like it did at the start of last season. That one somehow sneaks in on Demko. It's Ovechkin's. So it's one nothing for the Caps. Brock Besser with a great chance here. Three on one. That's not a penalty. Pearson takes his man down. Nice pass for Besser, but saved by Mr. Postman. One more look. 
So you'd think, oh no, the Canucks are unlucky. Well, not necessarily. Look at this goal right at the end of the first period. This is lucky for Vancouver. Takes a weird bounce. Darcy Kemper flat out misses it. And luckily, Elias Pettersson's doing what you have to do, go to the net, because you never know what's going to happen. And there it is, a free one. 1-1 one, one after one. But then, these things always seem to even out. A weird bounce for Lars Eller. Right off the face-off, hits the backboards, comes out in front, and he scores. And it's 2-1. This is a nice play, but Nils Oman has to shoot here. Don't pass it back. You had a chance. Take the shot. But it doesn't matter, really. The Canucks had a great second period nonetheless. Bo Horvat going to the net off the uh, Tanner Pearson rebound. That made it 2-2. Then a nice shot and a nice tip here. Kuzmenko the shot. Curtis Lazar, his first as a Canuck, with the nice deflection, and it's 3-2 for Vancouver. Then the Canucks get a power play, and they move it around with pretty decent speed. And it ends up going to JT Miller, and it's 4-2. And that's the way it was after 40 minutes. And then the wheels just fell right off, as they did against Philadelphia, as they did against Edmonton. Power play goal, Dylan Strom, 4-3. Then Ovechkin finds John Carlson, 4-4. Then Ovechkin finds Connor Sheary. There's Ovechkin, there's 5-4. Nobody want to cover him? You got to tie up Ovechkin here. He goes to the net, Kuznetsov the shot, Ovechkin the deflection. Yep. Been a rough start for Demko, Bruce Boudreau, and the Vancouver Canucks. They play Columbus tomorrow. They are 0-3 to start the year. All right. Thanks a lot, Squire. Coming up, the Canadian grocer offering what feels like a gift to shoppers. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, we're staying at the scene of that developing news in Burnaby tonight. As you reported earlier, two bodies have been found. We know that the bodies are of a man and a woman. They were found in a Jeep outside Alpha Secondary, but we do not know who those people were nor how they died. Lots of questions. If we get any more answers, we'll certainly have them at 11. Plus, BCGEU members have narrowly ratified a deal with government. The vote was pretty close, though, and we'll have the details tonight. Chris? All right, we'll look forward to that. Thank you, Jordan. Now. Inflation is driving the cost of groceries up, but Canada's biggest grocery chain is putting the brakes on those increases, at least temporarily. Loblaw is freezing food prices on hundreds of its no-name brand items. It's a small move, but it's hoped other Canadian grocery companies will follow suit. Loblaw's no-name brand is sold in 2,400 stores across the country, including in Provigo's and Maxi's. With Loblaw's price freeze announcement, the cost of 1,500 no-name products won't change until January 31st. In a statement, CEO Galen Weston said, the cost of food has increased rapidly. Much of this is out of our control. To help Canadians, we're focusing on what is in our control. The news is welcomed by those who see people withering because of inflation. I think that 
the, a food price freeze for basic products can be fairly helpful to people who are struggling. This is uh, some coffee. Sam so Watts coffee runs Montreal's so Welcome Hall mission, an organization helping those in need. He says recently, an extra 1,000 people a week rely on the mission for food. There are people who used to be able to make ends meet, just barely, but now that's not the case. Experts say Loblaw's price freeze is no doubt a stroke of marketing genius, but some expect other large corporations to follow suit. You needed uh, someone to take the first step, and uh, Galen Weston has done that. I think they're going to influence competitors. I think they're going to also influence um, organizations in other industries. Need help, madam? Family-run grocery store Esposito knows how much consumers are hurting. And every week we put good specials on the to help the customer. They also realize clients are price shopping more than ever. I see between stores which one are cheaper, and I go there. It's estimated food prices have risen around 10% in the last year. With holidays around the corner, some hope more price freezes are on the way. Amanda Jellowicki, Global News, Montreal. All right, you can do a lot of good with what little money you have left. Day one of Variety Week is almost finished, but we are just getting started. And thank you to your donations, all of which have been matched up to $50,000 by an anonymous donor during the news hour tonight. Variety can now help 55 kids with over $135,000 donated so far. But we need to get that number higher, so please, if you're able... Call 310-KIDS or go to variety.bc.ca and help Variety help kids. And thanks to Caitlin and her mom for sharing their story earlier in the news hour. We've got more great stories coming up this week, and we hope you'll watch us for those. Take care, have a good night, everybody, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.